Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Well, that went slightly better than the worst it could have possibly gone, so... Hooray! Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we just had our most downloaded episode of Very Bad Wizards ever, thanks to Sam Harris. And, you know, I kind of thought we were both disagreeing with him about moral responsibility, but I seem to take all the heat from that on Twitter and Facebook. But you were still disagreeing with him. Why? What well, is it that I'm Jewish? Is it, I, I think it's is just it a scapegoat? I think that if you look at the actual amount of time I spoke in that last hour, you and Sam overwhelmed me so much that I have maybe three minutes of disagreement. So it's just a no. sheer matter of ratio. <laughs> let, let me just say, because I expect this is going to be a longer conversation, let me just say that today what we're talking about is, and this was your idea, Tamler, our top four recommendations, uh, a book- Are you already distancing yourself from this? Movie, well, I just <laughs> want to give credit where it's a book, a movie, an article- and a TV show that um, in some way relates to to the topics we discuss here, moral psychology, ethics, for the new year. Yeah, something to get you started off right on the new year. Right. Right? Someone had a great idea of turning our podcast into a drinking game. As, as you sort of alluded to, the podcast has been your personal drinking game for quite some time. <laughs> and the game just consists of drink, record First podcast. of all, <laughs> I didn't allude to that. <laughs> Second of all, that's not true. Uh, but first of all, yeah, no, he what he was saying was, um, and this was from we should know this somebody on Twitter. We'll we'll thank him in the next episode when this gets <laughs> finally done because we're going to turn this into a contest, right? Uh, yeah, this is going to be a contest. <laughs> Who gets? More you don't seem up? as excited about this. <laughs> uh, so, but his idea was every time we say the word intuition, that you have to take a drink when someone says intuition. I don't think that's the right one necessarily because there are going to be episodes where we don't talk about it enough for you to get drunk enough to listen to us and enjoy us. But I, I do think that's a great idea. I think we should find and the and another suggestion was uh, this again one was from, from Daniel somebody, Hill. This was Daniel Hill, right? That every time uh, Dave makes an anti-Semitic remark, <laughs> no, or that, I, that any alleged anti-Semitism, alleged, he, he, I guess Dave's lawyers got to him uh, <laughs> before before <laughs> before, that, before that tweet. Uh, Mark Erickson right. was was That's the right. person who suggested that. But anyway, uh, the, yeah, 
we thought, or at least I thought, and I thought we thought, I thought we were agreed on this that that we would that we would open it up to the now larger very bad wizards community. Although we don't know how many of you Sam Harris listeners are still with us. <laughs> Right. After two and a half hours, I feel it's a lot to ask of someone to, to listen to another episode of us. But, but a great number of tweets and emails. And, and so thank you. Okay. But we're still talking about the drinking game. Yeah. Just stick with it. We're going to open it up. Like you to just eke out one hour of conversation on the drinking game. No, I, I all I want to do is just have a contest that we open it up to people and you can post it on Facebook or tweet us at, at peas at Tamler at very bad wizards or email us at very bad wizards at gmail.com. But your idea for a good very bad wizards drinking game. A or a picture game. of how smashed you are at the end of an episode. <laughs> I'm being serious here and you're trying to like minimize this. Which is hurtful. <laughs> Please. The winner of this contest, because there will be a winner to this contest, will win the very first, a free, very bad Wizards t-shirt that is in the works. So right. kind of, but, but you will get a very bad, even if it's just me drawing on it or having my daughter draw on it, <laughs> you will get a t-shirt if you come up with a good idea for a drinking game for us, for our podcast. So that's it. All right. Uh, let me see if I can on the same page with Dave uh, <laughs> for the rest of this. What are we doing uh, but, on this episode? But, but back David? to back to the. Uh, so I first wanted to talk about this. The question that you started off with, which is, it's true. We both seem to disagree with Sam Harris, and you got the brunt of the the remarks. So let let me it actually is. provide my hypothesis for why this is the case. Aside from just that, you talk way more than me. <clears throat> it's that's think, not true. Yeah, so I think that it, it boils down to you're in, insisting that your source of evidence that moral blame um, is not threatened by any truth of determinism um, as being the emotions and the intuitions that you have regarding dr driving drunk or regarding your daughter. And whereas I was making a much more reasonable claim about, about sort of comparing emotions like love and how they aren't undermined by our biology or the truth of determinism and just making an analogy with with the emotions that we feel surrounding moral blame. So I so I think that's why why you got the heat. Cuz my I'm but, but, that, but you're just doing the exact same thing that I was doing. No, no, no. Was, but you you yeah. you you seem to think was, that any intuition is equally is equally valid. No, okay. What are you now? One of these like Twitter weirdos? Uh, uh, that that that's obviously not what I was. Saying. I'm not. My but point I'm, was but... the same kind of emotions that that lead you to want to forgive somebody and to let them off the hook when you realize that they weren't the source ultimately of their actions in some deep sense. These same emotional responses also push the other way, which is why we're very conflicted I, about I, this. So, okay. So I, I think that it's just that your particular examples of, of the, the emotions that you feel like about, about self-blame for drunk driving, I think those just don't pull people. I think that so, so while you're right that I'm appealing to an intuition sort of by analogy that we have these other, these other emotions well, that are I think they pulled some people. <laughs> they pulled people who well, listened and understood to what I was saying. Actually, 
think what I was saying got completely lost with the the jumping up and down of your your appeal to your intuition about drunk driving. There I, was no jumping up and down. It's a it's actually well, we were on it. audio, so I don't know. I felt like you were jumping up and down, metaphorically jumping up and down. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so I I just think that that the the drunk driving one was a was an interesting choice on your part in the sense that self blame is actually something that that many people don't even just generally admit to having like that sense of condemnation for their own actions and so building the intuition about people being blameworthy in a in a fairly difficult case like you were describing about like blaming yourself for drunk driving like we know most people actually think that they you know they blame the situation for their own actions i i guess i you, I know a better class of people than you know because I think that anybody that no, I'm almost anybody that studies. I know who to the, I, the whole like I get, to fifty years of research on attribution theory showing that people tend to make situational attributions for their own actions and dispositional ones for other people's actions. That's fine, but I'm talking about the specific case that I that I was talking about. I think people would find it very emotionally difficult. And also just non-virtuous to let themselves off the hook for situational factors in that in that specific scenario that I described. Like, but that, that's uh, the same appeal. Like, I mean, you're making a hypothetical appeal to people's intuitions, and you're asking why it doesn't work. Like, that's what those studies do. Okay. I, I'm sorry for those listeners who wouldn't feel at all guilty about running over a little child when they drove home drunk. Then I can't appeal to you. I can't reach you. I'm sorry. Enjoy well, your life. <laughs> stay uh, stay away from my neighborhood when you've been drinking. Like I don't you know. know it's like I don't know what you want me to tell you. I don't know. I don't know how it follows. You're, you're the one who asked, like, why is it that people have this this seeming difficulty, in, or why why are people actually yeah. getting on your case? And I'm saying I think that it's an example that is that is one that people find hard to catch. And you know, see, I dis the, I disagree. Like, I, I that's not the diagnosis that I would make. I would think that I'm a this is and this is the fundamental confusion I think with the the opposition to this view, which is. I think what people have a problem with is that I appeal to emotion at all. And they don't understand that you're appealing to emotion and intuition either way. And so they think they're appealing to just pure reason and logic, whereas I'm appealing to emotion. I, I, I don't my evidence for this being the diagnosis just is that everyone picked up on that fuck it part of me <laughs> that, 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 that was their that was their talking point. All these Twitter people was their talking point that, was um, that I said, fuck it at some point. Yeah, I feel like even if it was cosmic rays, I still deserve deserve to get my beat down by 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 the father or that there is part of me that feels that way and my point there wasn't that fuck it is the best philosophical argument out there as many sarcastically pointed out my point was that I, that I, I have a pull right that, that, that are my you're emotionally pulled in two ways uh, when it comes to things like that the idea that this is some sort of logical deduction that you can make that you're not responsible if it's cosmic rays or if it's uh if it's you know the big bang ultimately I, or that that that's just not it doesn't work that way it's the problem is I, I think that you you really are sort of tacitly making this claim that 
that there is no difference in the class of intuitions that you appeal to. Right? Like surely the problem with your appeal to emotion is that people can easily generate another example where they wouldn't feel that way. And so the, the, I think that the desire is to find some, I think you're straw manning by saying that like Sam or me in this case are appealing to pure reason or pure logic. What we want is just a more consistent foundation to judge across these classes of, of examples. If I can easily have an emotion of blame in one case and an emotion of not wanting to blame in another case, and the only feature that has changed is some spurious or capricious di difference between whether it's, but it's you not or capricious. somebody else. I mean, if I judge differently, like blame for somebody I really like versus somebody I don't like, but all of the features are the same, like I think that, yeah, at the end of the day, it's an appeal to some intuition, but it's an intuition that is more reliably generated across the cases. Here's the thing, and this is and this has taken me a long time to kind of figure out. But I think what we're asking for that 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 exact thing that you're asking for is like asking for I want just a, some sort of clear basis for understanding who it's appropriate to love and who it's not appropriate to love. Like, how do you justify loving this person? But not that person. I mean, that person has all these very similar qualities to this person. So how do you justify that? Like, why? Like, it's just when it comes to love, if somebody got on your case about that, you would find that ultimately to be a dead end of a conversation, right? Right. It, so <clears throat> love might break down in that case. It, it is the case that love is so subjective. That is, everybody has a person they love and a person they don't. But anger might be a better one, right? Where the very thing that I was saying, and I'm surprised that you are resisting some set of criteria for judging an emotion to be appropriate that might be true across cases, because it seemed to me that you were agreeing with the anger examples. That is like, if I think that you did something wrong and I'm angered by it, and then I find out that you didn't, in fact, do something wrong. My anger ought to change. And so it seemed as if during the conversation, maybe you cut this out, I don't remember. Um, you were actually saying that that this is, so the set of appraisals that gives rise to anger, you can judge some of them as appropriate or inappropriate. So if I'm angry at you yeah, for absolutely. no reason, so, so if I'm angry at you for no reason, it doesn't seem as if it's a justified response. The same is true for that class of actions that might give rise to blame. No, right. That's absolutely true. But there come, but. It doesn't mean that determinism is going to be the deciding thing that makes you switch. You're, you're switching the argument. So on mm -hmm. the one hand, you, yeah, on the one hand, you're saying that, um, well, it's all intuition at the end of the day. That's the argument that I think is unfair which, because – Which just was Sam Harris agreed with. Well, but, but this is the distinction that and I don't agree with it. Um, and I don't think that he agrees. I know you don't because I mean, you're so, a county. But, but it's, it's that there might be a distinction between the kinds of intuitions that might be more reliable. There is a reliable – there are a reliable set of reasons that ought to give rise to anger or blame in one case. And, but that, then you're switching it to an aesthetic judgment and you're saying that blame is more like an aesthetic judgment, like whether I so – My point have, was that sometimes new information will make a difference, but sometimes it won't. Right. And so and I'm saying that blame is more like anger in the case where new information does make a difference. Not always though. Anger – it, it just okay, but let's, depends on the information. Well, okay, fine. Well, let's just say that there are two different kinds of emotional responses, one for which – Information makes a difference, and one for which no, information. Is I, not. There's no there there. 
again, I, I reject that. That's, Isn't that this what This is the whole saying? point. No. The point is that for all emotional responses, there is some information that will make a difference and some information that won't make a difference. And the battle that we're having or that I'm having with you and I don't even know who I'm having it with anymore is whether the information that determinism is true is in the category of information that makes a difference or the category of information that's completely irrelevant. That's the debate right there. Sure. Fine. Like that is one, one argument that you're making that in some cases, some information matters I think that it's fair to say that in some cases there are emotional responses for which information matters less than in other cases. For some emotional response like jealousy, the information actually matters a lot. Like fear, it turns out to like, at least descriptively, not matter nearly as much, right? So there are some emotions that are actually really heavy on the amount of appraisal or the amount of cognition that has to go into it. And there are some emotions that don't seem to be like fear. Um, or maybe even aesthetic judgments where you just see it and you just have this feeling, right? So no matter what you learn about the artist, you might not ever like it. But for a, for a judgment like blame, I think at least you could disagree with this, but it's different than the objection that it's all intuition at the end of the day. So I'm saying Sam just believes that there is some information that matters for the judgment of blame that you don't agree about. But that doesn't right. mean that that's, it's the same that's, argument that's, that it's exactly. all intuition at the end of the day. What's all intuition at the end of the day is whether this particular piece of information to whether the person is blameworthy or not. Um, that's what ultimately comes down to uh, intuition. Yeah, I, it does. I just, first of all, the drinking game is going berserk right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> the intuition. Yeah. Um, yeah. You should hop on, by the way. I know. I don't have. My my family, they're teetotalers. I have water. Oh, see, literally I was water. just at my in-laws and they're just they're like, you can start drinking there at 10 in the morning and nobody bats an eyebrow. <laughs> it's a kind of the ideal in-law situation for me, actually. <laughs> you have vast, vast expanses of lost memory. It, it's, I it's so I have great. to just dig yeah. through prescription drugs and medicine cabinets for like the old people in my family. <laughs> Dude, that's good too. <laughs> I, I think, and this is why maybe you're getting the amount of resistance that you're getting, which is that I don't think that you believe that any old intuition people have. Every time I say something like that, you accuse me of being Kantian and wanting some sort of consistency. But I mean, I think that, that you want some sort of consistency too. That's right. I want people to have all the information, all the empirical information, and I want them to be in a reasonable sort of frame of mind more or less along the lines of their normal just emotional state and i want them to have full all the relevant empirical facts at that point then i think you can't go any further well um, but saying the relevant what, empirical facts is sort of begging the question here well no the relevant what anybody would consider what both sides would consider the relevant facts so any fact that, but that is the is sort that is considered relevant no, no, no. I get it. But the point is that they know it, that they know that fact. Even if they don't agree that it's relevant, they at least know it. That's all That's all I want. If, if Sam thinks there's a piece of empirical information, like let's say there is a pill that would cure uh, drunk driving or something like that, and I don't know that, then I need to, even if I don't think it's relevant, which I don't, I, I need to at least know it 
in order to make uh, what I think is the best judgment uh, and an informed judgment about about the case. That's what I think you need. And so I think but um, but do you at least accept that there are different sorts of intuitions here that, that like say one might be purely driven by an emotional reaction whereas one might be the sort of you know sort of evolved cognitive uh, you know visual illusiony style kind of intuition where where it, I, I, what matters I, I, I for guess. some for defending some claims is so for an aesthetic judgment an appeal to just a gut reaction might be all you need to justify it but for something like a mathematical claim, you have to appeal to more basic intuitions that might be more universal or whatever. You know? I don't know. Like I think – I mean I, I have this with aesthetics too that I think actually an, a pure aesthetic judgment you can't make actually. You do need a lot of background information. Well, OK. Well, then that's in a different – then that's in a different yeah. class. But like like if you're talking my, about for taste, yeah. Like for yeah. taste, for most taste things like eggplant, you can't ever make me like eggplant. <laughs> Um, there's nothing you can tell me. There's no new information I need. And that is different maybe than uh, moral responsibility judgment. I mean, look. Found, but I think that so, matters. That I don't want you to gloss over that because I think that I'm just not saying like over. it's all intuition at the end of the day is, is – But, I, but you keep saying that. I keep saying that when I keep qualifying it and I, and I, and I, like, I don't know like what – Well, like, that's what you were saying I, in the episode, right? It's all intuition. You I, were I saying didn't, that I didn't, I didn't just keep – you act like I that was like a mantra. It's all intuition at the end of the day. No. Like I, I would say that at certain points in the conversation where we would disagree over whether – a specific piece of information was relevant well, that's to what whether the person to. was blameworthy. That's what but I'm that referring is, to. But that is, but then, then I stand by that. <laughs> but I'm not, but like, say, like, I didn't mean as a general statement, it's all intuition at the end of the day that that applies to like all areas and all genres of, of inquiry and, and, and thinking. I just meant in this particular instance. I, uh, I mean, but that's exactly what I'm talking about. That that moral responsibility judgments are a different sort of intuition. That's my disagreement. I'm I'm not I'm saying that like that is that is the conversation stopper for you. That moral responsibility judgments are you know you can't like just because you're appealing to an intuition about this you know just makes it in the same class as your intuition about about uh, whether or not you deserve blame as a drunk driver. I think those are different. There are different sources for both of those intuitions. Why do you love your daughter more than you love my daughter? But I, but this is I already I already said that love is a bad example for this, right? I mean, so love. Like, but I thought you were the one who brought it up as an analogy. I did bring of, it up as an analogy, but but it was an analogy served that was serving another purpose. It was an analogy about the whether or not the facts of the biology of love should undermine my feeling of love for my daughter. It wasn't an analogy for moral responsibility judgments being consistent across individuals because it's – you can't – you don't love people across individuals like that. It's not – it's not a it's not a feature of love in the way that it is a feature of of another. I, I, and I don't think it's consistent with moral responsibility judgments either. Well, I think at least that's the appeal. I think that like a lot of people really do believe that moral responsibility judgments ought to be somewhat consistent across people in the way that a, in the way that love is not. Right? Everybody accepts that you you love your mom in a way that you don't love someone else's mom, and that's fine. But I don't think they accept that if a guy's wearing a red shirt, he should be blamed more than a guy who's wearing a blue shirt. Right? There are reasons. I, I don't know. I actually like as a meta thing. <laughs> we're like, not I was sort progress. of thinking this was going to be like a cheerful episode, <laughs> and I feel like we're just fighting. It's okay. I don't blame you. I know because but, you know why. 
because an evil neuroscientist is probably in control of your mind. But we haven't talked. I mean, I think that it is valuable to have, like, I want to have this conversation because it it is like a source of frustration about the Sam Harris conversation, but but we're just going in circles. No, here's what, okay. And, and I should say, having been on the defensive, not really expecting it, but been on the defensive a lot, like I would have been very happy with the response to it in the sense of, People have been really nice and respectful for the most part. There's always some, you know, like t- people on Twitter or whatever. But but for the most part, I think people actually did get that, you know, where they disagreed. They that they, they they at least sort of understood where we both were coming from. And I and I and I've been incredibly impressed by that. I think there's two there's two things that maybe we could talk about I think would apply to sort of both of us. So yeah. and here's one that I that that came from a really nice write up of the piece by Daniel Missler, I think his name is and we'll link to this on the website. He he characterized my position re- for the most part really well. He he wasn't one of those people who thought which all, this this was one thing that frustrated me was that I didn't understand Sam Harris's position or right. that I didn't want to accept it. Now I mean I like I spent a whole dissertation defending that exact same position. My first major journal article was saying why accepting moral responsibility skepticism actually is fine. There's no problem for your life. So so yeah. it was a little frustrating to get to get that kind of feedback. But of course, yeah, and this is where I work. this is where I even jumped in to defend you at some point because I, I think that's that's the unfair one. And in fact, even even you, even I, even I. Yeah. So so maybe we'll put a link to to um, your. I was gonna say like, what does it feel like to have a major journal article? Because I, I haven't. <laughs> you have a lot of major journal articles. We'll put a. What does it feel like to have a real TED talk? Uh, <laughs> But 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 what he said was the one thing that frustrated him, and this is from his piece, he says he wished Sam Harris had pressed us more on this question of once we as individuals or as a society accept that free will does not exist, libertarian free will, what justification remains for moral responsibility outside of a consequentialist framework? Let me just hear your response to that before. Yeah, so I my my response was at least I was trying to flesh it out, and I actually don't think that I have as well worked out one as you you do, given that like I I was focusing a lot on the descriptive part, but I actually think that that the question is misguided in the sense that it is like asking what justification we have for jealousy or what justification do we have for for any other emotion like anger, and the only justification right. that I think we need is that somebody met a certain kind of criteria that we all seem to have for what an agentic action is. You know, I think that that provides enough justification for blame and responsibility um, that does not rely on consequentialism. I don't know what kind of justification he's seeking, right? right? I, but but this is the this is the issue, I think, and I think I would phrase it exactly as you did, um, that it's a misguided question because I think you're looking at responsibility the wrong way. There is a way in which it's impo- it's impossible for you to be responsible, causally 
ultimately responsible. But in terms of people feeling blame towards you, feeling anger, feeling resentment, and 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 feeling that that on at the end of the day is an appropriate response. at the end of the day, those things just don't have the kind of justifications that I think these people are looking for. You know, it's like asking how you can justify loving your child more than another child or why you're jealous that your partner cheated on you. Yeah, why you root for a sports team, whatever, you know. So I think that people are willing to abandon the justification, any any kind of real justification for rooting for a sports team and just rely on their emotions. But I think that that the some of these emotions, and this is why I want to distinguish between the kinds of intuition, some of these I think people just generally accept as reasonable responses for any person. That like in a way that I can say, well, yeah, you'd be angry if someone slapped you and you would feel that the other person, so long as they had control over their actions in some local agentic sense, actually deserved blame, even if it wasn't you who got hit. I think that, that that just seems to be a reasonable sort of justification in a way that that I thought Sam was granting. He was actually saying, well, no, I, I agree that there is a, there's a way in which agents are- No, but he to, tried to cash it out in consequentialist he terms. He did, and, and I think that this is-, this is you know, some sort of just the belief that it has to boil down to consequences is not the sort of justification. And this is actually my real point. At the end of the day, what frustrates me about those arguments is that there needs to be some sort of on their very own criteria, there needs to be some sort of justification for even giving a fuck as a consequentialist. Why do you give a fuck as a consequentialist? That is, why doesn't it boil down to egoism? Why do you even care if somebody else hurts somebody else? Because people will do that with the loving your children thing. They'll say, well, the reason is, is because ultimately if people love their own children, then that leads to more happiness. You know, there I'm like with Bernard Bernard Williams, where that's one thought too many. If you think that the thing that justifies you loving your child is that that, you know, that makes the world a better place in some way, then you shouldn't that that shouldn't be your justification. That's right. And I think that it's sort of misguided. It's a misguided view of what what love requires. And maybe that's where we agree. It's a misguided view of what blame and not even just the emotion of blame. I really want to like to, to say that like some sort of cognitive evaluation of blame, like it's a misguided view of what that evaluation requires. Like I think, and I think that most people throughout the world, like they're just lay intuitions are that people who do things on accident don't deserve, you know, don't deserve to be punished in the same way that people who do things on purpose. Now, in some like broad sense, like it maybe it would be a worse world in which we punish everybody who did things on accident. But but that's again like if you were just a pure consequentialist, you wouldn't care. Like you would just say like, well, what is the chance that the person's going to do it again? That's the only thing you care about, right? Right. You don't have to be like Anthony Burroughs and Stanley Kubrick to think that taking a utilitarian, a purely utilitarian or consequentialist approach to punishment is going to be not conducive to right. human right. flourishing. That's right. And, 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 and I'm not even uh, sure that yeah. what, where, I, I think that it requires further justification, again, like if this is the criteria, to move from belief that people aren't responsible to a consequentialist framework for punishment. I think there's a right. missing step there, which is, again, like why, 
why do you give a fuck? Like, why, why isn't it all egoism at some form of egoism at the end of the day? Right. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the Achilles heel for the Peter Singer, Josh Green defense of consequentialism is that ultimate. And this is where, again, I know you're going to get mad, but ultimately no, I mean, it comes down to intuition. Well, this you know, is the like, sense in which I think that yeah, is the same yeah. kind of intuition. Yeah. Like yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. made more progress in the last 10 minutes than we made in the first. <laughs> we did in the first 30. I think that's true. <laughs> So let's take a break. When we come back, our top movie, book, article, TV show, moral psychology related, recommendations for the new year. You wonder ever, you're a bad man? No. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, so as we said at the top of the show, we're talking today about our, I guess not top four, at least I was thinking about it just in terms of what are four, what are four things that, that I would recommend or that you would recommend for us to spend our time, our valuable leisure time in the new year. Um, and so you suggested four different forms of media. They're actually very different. It was a, a movie, a book, an article. Yeah. The article threw me off. I'm like, what do, I, what do I recommend for someone to just fucking read a journal article? <laughs> it's I know. Hard that was a tough one. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, totally forgot that we even were including that until I looked back at my notes and I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, shit. It's what, it's basically us peddling shit. No, I, not for me. I'm nothing. <laughs> I'm sure Dave's is going to be, they involve his music. <laughs> As you said, my, the, the, <laughs> the podcast is just some way of me justifying spending time on music, um, which yeah. I don't think is wrong. All right. All right. What should we go do first? Like, should we do the, should we do the article and book first? And then I, I'm excited about I'm all curious. of my, yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't we start with the article? Actually, that that makes sense because the article relates to what we've been talking. Well, there's two articles actually. Uh, of uh, course, of course, there's two. No, this is the only one. One A, uh, one A, and one B. This isn't the one I'm going to talk about um, at any length. But um, I think there's an article by David Hume, who I'm a big fan of, the rival of Dave. Pizarro's hero, Immanuel Kant. And there's an article of his called The Skeptic that I don't think people have read. It's an essay in his book of essays. And it's it's the culmination of four essays, the Epicurean, the Platonist, the Stoic, and then there's the Skeptic. It's a great little capsule of Hume's thought. And all I'm going to do 
to whet your appetite for this essay, which you can we'll we'll link to, is just read you something from the opening paragraph. There is one mistake to which philosophers seem liable, almost without exception. They confine too much to their principles and make no account of that vast variety which nature has so much affected in all her operations. When a philosopher has once laid hold of a favorite principle, which perhaps accounts for many natural effects, he extends the same principle over the whole creation and re reduces to it every phenomenon, though by the most violent and absurd reasoning. Our own mind being narrow and contracted, we cannot extend our conception to the variety and extent of nature, but imagine that she is as much bounded in her operations as we are in our speculation. I, I, I don't know how much of that got across, but that, this seems to me to be the problem. And, 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 and somebody asked me on Twitter whether I liked philosophy or you know that I should read Rebecca Goldstein's book in defense of philosophy. I love philosophy. I just sometimes get frustrated with exactly what Hume is frustrated with in this paragraph and in this essay in general, which is that philosophers try to oversimplify or over-systematize things. We find this principle that seems to work in a lot of cases, and we think it should work for more cases, that, and we just don't understand how complex and messy life is. And our philosophies need to reckon with that. So, so that's my first article. I'll, why don't you do your first article and then I'll do my, my 1A article. Um, Hume's the skeptic. The, uh, so the principle, the general principle is don't overgeneralize. Well, so I didn't have two articles, but I just thought of one that I actually won't talk about too much. But it's, it's an article that um, uh, was written by William James. Uh, who is sort of considered the father of at least American empirical psychology, um, but was also who was also a philosopher. So it's perfect for for this this show. It's a it's an essay that was written in 1882 that I don't think most people know about um, from William James. For all his work on you know William James talked about basically everything psychology he talked about free will, a lot of the things that we discuss. But he had this essay called the <laughs> the subjective effects of nitrous oxide. And I will as well read a teaser, just the first sentence. Some observations of the effects of nitrous oxide gas intoxication, which I was prompted to make by reading the pamphlet called The Anesthetic Revelation and the Gist of Philosophy by a guy named Blood in 1874, have made me understand better than ever before the strength and the weakness of Hegel's philosophy. That's awesome. <laughs> so William James just got high on nitrous and decided to think about Hegel. And um, he actually wrote a, what, what is what, one of the worst poems that you could ever read in print. Um, so we'll put a link to that. <laughs> James did? Yeah. On, on nitrous oxide? He, wrote, he transcribed some sentences that he wrote down while he was on nitrous oxide. I'll read you the, but the first line. What's mistake but a kind of take? What's nausea <laughs> but a kind of ausia? <laughs> So <laughs> he's so high. William James got high and wrote an article. Uh, uh, I think this is what it would take for me to appreciate Hegel. We should Hegel. do it. We should, we should have a we little should do live. Ep <laughs> yeah, like nitrous. Like I don't know how to get nitrous oxide, but you know, my I've never had a dentist that's given it to me. No, have you ever have done I. it? My, da my daughter has. I've done nitrous oxide from like those little whippets. But uh, but I've never actually had it at a dentist's office. I've never even done a whip it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, now we know what to do next time, next conference. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> that's a great choice. Um, I, I, you know, 
much less boring than my <laughs> first choice, but I still recommend right. it. My, well, my second choice is no, is actually not boring at all, and it's a re, it's a more contemporary article from 2008 that I think a lot of people, even in philosophy, don't know, um, but that's relevant, I think, in a deep way to our discussion with Sam and the discussion in the first segment. It's called Free Will, Art, and Morality by Paul Russell. Paul Russell is a philosopher at uh, University of British Columbia. Is this like uh, just an article that he wrote in 2008? It was published in the Journal of Ethics. Good journal. People, for some reason, haven't paid enough attention to it. And it draws the analogy of responsibility for art artistic achievement and also athletic achievement versus responsibility for moral action. So it just starts out with arts and athletics and sports and notes, of course, the huge amount of luck that's involved when it comes to how good you are as an artist or how good you are at sports, right? So first of all, there's just natural talent, right? I mean, I suck at drawing. My daughter sucks at drawing. Um, there's no way we could ever be talented artists. We just, we don't have that talent. So we're just, and some people just do some like little three or four year olds can draw much better than I can right now. If I took like a class for six months, right. uh, and then there's opportunities to train opportunities to learn opportunities to participate. Um, some people have them, some people don't. Right. Uh, and then there are factors that that, that aren't obviously luck that you attribute more to the will, like your effort, your self-discipline, your motivation, all these things that you need to develop your talent. And ultimately, as we all agree, if we're not libertarians, that th those things also don't have their source completely in us. Um, and then finally, there's how you, the performance, like, especially this is true in sports, but this can be true in arts and live theater, just when the thing is actually happening, how well you execute. And there's a lot of luck that goes in that and a lot of things that will influence the evaluation. And so when you get to the evaluation, you have these standards that you evaluate the, the 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 piece of art or the sports the you know the whatever the athlete the artist um, whether it's LeBron, LeBron James or Puccini or whatever or Mozart or or the film and there are rewards that come with positive evaluation and there are punishments of a sort that come with negative evaluation and we never even think to ask when we're evaluating the fairness of these evaluations, the fairness of the standards of evaluations, we never think to ask anything that has to do with whether determinism is true. It's right. always, that's just considered, that's, we were talking earlier uh, about information that matters and information, and information that doesn't. That's information that just doesn't matter. We ask, and this is according to Russell, that, you know, is this the right or correct standard? If we're asking, uh, we asked, has this standard been properly ap applied? And are the conditions and the circumstances of evaluation reasonable and fair? 
So we might ask, you know, if the athlete has had to play three games in 10 days, if it's a football player or something like that, we might think, oh, well, that's not a fair, that's, it's not fair to uh, evaluate him. That's too hard on the body or something like that. But one thing you never ask is, were they ultimately responsible? And when we're evaluating Mozart and praising Mozart or blaming an athlete or blaming an artist, for a piece of shit movie, like the question of determinism really never comes up and, and nobody would think that it should come up. They would think you were sort of missing the point. And then where the, the, the paper just asked the question, why should that be different for moral achievement or moral lack of achievement? It just reminds me sort of of this, this point about sports um, reminds me of – there is in some, in some sense people do – track how much of an athlete's success is due to hard work and how much is due to sort of in you know innate talent or something like that um not nearly as as you know as much obviously as they do for in, in other domains they don't seem to have that much innate talent yeah, but they're just, still really good yeah, yeah. rudy the rudy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's usually the like the white point guard, like yeah, the well, Steve it, Nash. It reminds me though that you know um, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird used to used to both say that they hated that um, you know Larry Bird was always described as you know such a hard worker and like he practiced so much, and Michael Jordan was described as a sort of natural talent. And both of them ignore like how fucking hard Michael Jordan had to practice and how gifted Larry Bird was. Right. Like, and it's, it's yeah. sort of undermining, um, you know, the, in both senses. No, that's right. It's like, let's say you're doing like a Martin Scorsese, who's better Martin Scorsese or, um, Paul Thomas Anderson, and you are evaluating their, their films and you're, you're blaming them for some or praising them for some. I mean, you just, we hold them responsible for certain films. Like there's certain things that, well, I don't hold, I don't hold Scorsese or let's say Orson Welles responsible for Magnificent Amberson because the studio took it over right. and they recut the ending, right? right? That's a relevant piece of information. That's why I don't blame Orson Welles for the ending of the Magnus Magnificent Ambersons. But the idea that I wouldn't blame him for the ending of it if he had just done it and he had had final cut, but he's <laughs> determined right. – that's like that would just be like okay that that would be just completely missing the point of what we're doing here. Right. So the question is why we're I'm not saying there's not an answer to this, but the question is why moral moral judgments are different than right. these kinds of judgments. And I'll just say you know this is there's also this general this, this other point that that um, Susan Wolf has made and that I I actually did my dissertation on, which is that that we seem to use different rules for praise even in morality than we do for blame, right? Yeah. You know, even even the positive end of the moral dimension seems to be um, we don't we don't appeal to determinism to undermine praise nearly as much as we do to undermine. Okay, so uh, my article is actually no, you already did your article. No, no, I did my one A. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, but I don't. I mean, I can go on. I I, I like that article. <laughs> yeah, that was okay. good. Um, maybe I'll just do this one quick. My one B article, since Tamler since Tamler cheated, I'm going to cheat is actually an academic article, an empirical article by Dan Cahan, uh, Erica Dawson, Ellen Peters, and Paul Slovic. I don't remember if I actually mentioned this on the podcast, but it's called Motivated Numeracy and Enlightened Self-Government. And I'll, I'll keep it quick, but it boils down to this really neat finding, which is that 
<clears throat> when you give people, um, so what the researchers did was they gave people a set of contingency tables. They said like, look, um, imagine that you have to evaluate uh, the following scientific study. And it was presented to them as a skin cream that's supposed to cure a rash. And they, you know, people did a trial and you give people the numbers that say, okay, these are the people who got the skin cream and the people who didn't. And these are the people for whom the skin cream worked and for whom it did not. And then you just ask people, uh, was this skin cream successful? Like, is this, did this skin cream work? And um, what you find is that people are good or bad when you, when you put the numbers so that the people who did use the skin cream got better, that number in the table, that two by two table that I just described is what tends to dominate. So that is people who are bad at math, just look at that number. And they say, well, the skin cream worked because that's the biggest number. Um, but in reality, what you have to do is you have to like do some calculations and figure out what the percentages of, are of the people who got the cream who didn't, the people who for whom it worked and for whom it didn't. And so what the researchers find is if when you give people this skin cream study, you can show that people, they use a scale that's called numeracy. That is just in general, people who are better with numbers do better at interpreting this contingency table. So the, the key here is that they gave people those same exact numbers, but this time as a study on gun control and whether a state that instituted a gun control ban had an increase in crime or a decrease in crime. Same exact numbers. And what they were interested in was, are people better or worse at, at evaluating this? Um, but is this also predicted by whether or not they're good or bad at numeracy? And so as you might imagine, right. they, they uh, divided people up into people who had conservative views and liberal views. What they found was that as opposed to what some people might predict, which is that the better you are with numbers, the less biased you would be, the more accurate you would be, was that for people who didn't want to see that gun control worked, uh, for instance, or who did want to see the gun control worked, the better they were with numbers, the more likely they were to make an error in their direction the one that they wanted to find. So that is, wow. they, they were more likely to distort uh, the results in order to fit their view. Right. So my prediction would be that they were equally likely or something right. like that. Right. But they were more likely. They, they were actually more likely. It's a, it's a, a really, really nice uh, demonstration that, that it's not just that people who think more about something or who think more carefully about it will arrive at the better answer. It's that sometimes being able to think more deeply about it actually can lead you to come up with better excuses or better. So that's what they were doing. They were rationalizing the numbers. Is that the idea? It, it seems to be. I mean, what they show is that they were just actually more likely to still conclude what they wanted to conclude. Um, I don't think that they gave people the chance to come up with reasons to justify it. But in contrast to the skin cream study, the, the numeracy, being smarter at numbers, actually just had the opposite effect. So it seems as if something was going on. That, yeah. All right. Well, well, that's a, that's a very cool paper, very cool study. We'll, we'll wait for the failed replication of it. To, 
<laughs> it's actually really, you know, it's really relevant to act, to that of evaluating scientific results in general. So when, you know, I, this happens to me all the time with things like caffeine, I see one paper that was actually, that shows that caffeine is good for you. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? Like I, my three, you know, three coffee cups a day habit is totally worth it. But there's like 20 papers that show that it's bad for you. I'm like scrutinizing the results. I'm like, oh, this sample size is low, you know. Um, I think we've talked about this, but I do this with alcohol. Yeah, that's right. I gobble up the like, like candy, those uh, papers that say, no, it doesn't matter how much you drink. It's good for your heart. You put it in there. All right. So move on to more fun stuff. Mother's milk for me. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Let's end with book and go to movie and TV show. What do you think? All right. Let's do that. My movie. So this is a movie that did come out this year that I recommend that everybody see. This is a movie that I think some of you will have heard of, but some of you weren't. I, you know, I'm half, I half believe that we're going to pick the same movie, but go on, go on. Calvary. Oh, no. Okay, good. No? No. Okay, good. This is a movie by John Michael McDonough, who is the brother. This, this, this is the most talented brother-brother family that's ever. John Michael McDonough is the is the the brother of Martin McDonough, who's a great Irish playwright and also the director of two awesome movies, In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. Mm. This is John Michael McDonough's second movie, Calvary. Uh, it stars Brendan Gleeson, who is also in In Bruges. I'll just give the the opening sort of premise, and you gotta just see just just YouTube. You can see the, the trailer is just the first scene. So you can see this. I'm not giving anything away. Guy comes into confession and he says... I first tasted semen when I was seven years old. Nothing to say. Certainly a startling opening line. What is that? Irony? I'm sorry. Let's start again. Then he just said, you know, they talk about that and how he had been raped by his priest when he was growing up repeatedly. And he said that he's going to kill the character um, played by Brendan Gleeson, who is named uh, Father James. And he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you next week. And he says, well, why don't you kill the, the priest that that did it and he said well he's already dead first of all and second of all that's not that's old news somebody <laughs> killing a guilty priest but huh. i'm gonna kill an innocent priest that's actually news right that's man bites dog right. right there if you kill an innocent priest, so i'm gonna kill you i'm gonna kill you next sunday on the beach i'm gonna give you a week to get your sort of house in order and then i'm gonna kill you and the whole now what's interesting about it is he knows who it is but we don't. So the whole movie is him going around his little Irish town talking to people and just doing his normal priestly duties. He also gets a visit by his daughter. So he has a daughter. He's a Catholic priest that has a daughter. There's a story behind that. We don't totally get all of it. But it's 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 awesome. And it's and again, this is one of these things where one of these movies that shows you just how complicated blame and responsibility is like so much more complicated than 
philosophical theory could capture. And it's also funny. It's dark. It's very darkly funny, but it's funny. You know, these, these guys, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I thought I like, I was entranced by the movie. The performance is amazing. And, and it's really all about blame, responsibility, redemption, forgiveness, forgiveness as a virtue, guilt. Great. Can't say enough about it. Oh, Calvary. Have you heard of it? No, I never even heard of it. Which I suspect won't be true of my movie for you. Uh, this is, I, I think, more lighthearted. Uh, my pick is Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a, yeah. Yeah. So Sn Snowpiercer is uh, a directed by Bong Joon-ho. And it is, I, I guess he's, he's, a Korean, he's a Korean filmmaker who's done some actually really cool films. Mother was the host. Was yeah. Um, and, and it's his first English. And, and Memories of a Murder, which yeah. is also awesome. Uh, his first English movie. <laughs> and it's, it's just – the plot is that there is some sort of climate event so that the world is actually completely frozen. It's inhabitable. And the surviving human beings have been put on <clears throat> sort of a perpetual motion train. And – uh, they are sort of circumnavigating the globe, I guess, it, you know, and living their complete lives in this train uh, to avoid, you know, sort of while they're waiting for the climate to change. Uh, everybody on Earth, again, has died. And the train is divided up into a class system so that the people at the back of the train are – it's almost like it's just taking the most simple metaphor for society that you can imagine, right? So the, the poor people at the back of the train and they have like shitty food and poor conditions. And then as you move up the train, like the class system gets better and better until you the really, really rich people um, are at the front of the train. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. All things in their place. All passengers in their section. In its own particular, preordained position. So it is. Now, as in the beginning, I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. When the foot seeks the place of the head, a sacred line is crossed. Know your place. Keep your place. Be a shoe. It's like a Marxist. Like, <laughs> like totally. it, you could describe it as like a Marxist, a simplistic Marxist fantasy, but it's it's so much. Cooler. It's just entertaining, right? It's, it's like, yeah, it is. It is a Marxist revolution uh, disguised as an action movie starring Chris Evans, who is Captain America. Captain, yeah, yeah. Um, who just just sort of kicks ass and takes names as he moves up the train, right? And so they encounter various different things at each stage of the train you finally see how the food is made as you move up you get you get to the point where all the rich kids you are see in what they've been eating you see what they've been eating the whole time um and uh and you know he's faced with with ethical decisions at each turn culminating in sort of the final act where where he's tempted in a sort of jesus, satan jesus kind of way but i won't spoil it um 
But one of the reasons that I actually appreciated this movie, which is which even more after I watched it, there is a blog that I wanted to point everybody to, which is called Every Frame a Painting. Um, Every Frame a Painting is is a movie editor who has this blog, Tony Zhu, Zhou, Zhu, um, who has this blog where he analyzes movies, um, not for their content really, but just for the way that they're shot and edited. And he has a great little bit that I'll link to on the way that the director uses the visual element of having to choose between going, moving left and moving right throughout this movie as a way to demonstrate how people are making tough ethical decisions. Oh, so that's it's a awesome. really great. Yeah. You'll love the blog actually. He Wait, blog. so, so it, it, explain this. So, uh, so the, the camera, the way that the director shoots it is you're often shown a simple decision that the main character Chris Evans has to make by like moving left or moving right. Does he go back or does he keep going forward? Um, and some and it's usually paired with some really tough decision, ethical decision that he has to make. Does he go back and save this person? Does he go keep right. moving forward and, and right. kicking ass? Um, and that, that, this, that way of showing the decision rather than telling it is, is just really well done throughout this movie. I think that the South Korean film directors are the best, like, group of directors. I mean, this Bung Joon-ho, Mother is a movie we could do with yeah. UOL yeah. one day. Yeah, that's Holy actually really shit, good. is that I, – I, I watched Old Boy with the director's commentary, and it was, like, subtitled director's commentary of Park Chan-wook just talking about Old Boy and all the shot decisions and the way every color and every aspect of the scene – is thematically relevant to what's going on in the story. It's they're they're amazing at just integrating all of that. I'm sure American directors do this to a large extent too, but I don't know. They just seem like they've taken it to another yeah, level. It's really exciting actually. My TV show, I I had not heard of this as of 2 weeks ago. We could do episodes of Very Bad Wizards devoted to every episode of this show, and it's called Black Mirror. Ah, that's it, exactly mine. Is that yours, too? Yeah, that's mine. That's yours, too? Yeah, okay. yeah. No, so we great. just that's great. Yeah. I just discovered it. Yeah. It's, I can't believe uh, we haven't talked about it, actually, before. I saw that. I've seen – yeah. I watched them a while ago. I, I, I've seen the – first four episodes so the first three and see this i've seen just the two seasons like it's like a modern day twilight zone it's british but should we give the premise of the first episode <laughs> yeah i think i was gonna say let's talk about the first episode i mean the general theme is this the sort of the technology and and modern society and and like the kinds of the kinds of problems that even just the near future might pose for us in terms of ethical dilemmas or decisions that we face because of technology. Yeah. First yeah, no, that's really the general theme. And, and in fact, most of them take place in some sort of near future, right. not our own. So there's certain te technological advances that exist in those episodes that do, that, that easily could, that easily like you could, could see right? it like come. I feel like we're almost but, there. Right. But in the first episode, it's really could be present day. And yeah. the premise of the episode is the Prime Minister of England is woken up in the middle of the night and there's a video that says, 
they have captured and they show her the princess. And I guess it's supposed to be like a sort of Kate Middleton type princess. Right. Like a well-beloved. Uh, and, and they will kill her by four that afternoon unless the prime minister meets their conditions. And they only have one condition. Well, they have one main condition and then a bunch of sub-conditions surrounding that, which is that on live television – he has to have sex with a pig. He has right. to fuck a pig on live television, I guess, to climax. <laughs> and, you know, it has to be done in a certain way that, you know, right. the, There's the, a, it the would be impossible can, to fake. They set out like they the, lay out sort of the, you know, and then they'll release her if he does that. And the episode just involves all of the decisions <laughs> yes, and all of the things that lead up to it. And it's freaking intense. It's intense. I will say, I will say that, you know, that most of the episodes I find in, not in a bad way, but to be just extraordinarily uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, they're just like really they're rough. Yeah. They're rough. I, I, another great one is, is the woman who finds herself being chased around by crowds who are recording her on self on her cell phone. On I see. Cell I haven't phone. seen that one. Yet. Oh, you'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, each of these is like a little philosophy thought experiment or tons of philosophy, psychology yeah. experiments. Anyway, they like, we, we will probably devote episodes to talking about yeah. these things with spoilers and stuff like that, but you can see it now for free black mirror. Yeah. Mm. Shall I do my book? Yeah. Do your book. My book is, and of course, I found a way to to marry uh, my love of comics with <laughs> with philosophy. My my book pick is actually a graphic novel uh, called Logic Comics: An Epic An Epic Search for Truth. And this is just a really, I think, extraordinarily well done. It has its flaws, but it is a graphic novel that is a biography of Bertrand Russell, and it is a biography of Bertrand Russell and. Uh, a general telling of the story of the the intense desire that philosophers and and logicians had to build a system of logic that was that could be where you could base you know truth right so one it, a good mathematical rigorous foundation for arriving at truth and and sort of recounts the failed attempt that that was um Bertrand Russell's um, and and so along the way, you you learn about Frege, you learn about Cantor, you learn about Wittgenstein. Some beautifully drawn panels of Wittgenstein during the war, you know, just hanging out in a foxhole, um, and his craziness. And if you've ever wanted to jerk off to Wittgenstein, <laughs> you've ever wanted. Well, I, I assume I assume everybody does. And just along the along the way, you just learn, and this is why I recommend it to Tamler. You just learn about logic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you you come out of this entertained and educated in in the best of ways. Um, it I've is, never heard of this. Again, yeah, it's written uh, by a Greek guy named Apostolos Doxiadis and a computer scientist named Christos Papadimitriou. As you can tell they're they're Greek, and um, it's just it's beautiful. Is that like a cool name in Greece, or do you get beat up <laughs> if, you have, if you're named Apost Apostolos Gibiatos? Apostolos Doxiadis. Uh, it's <laughs> Doxiadis. really cool names, man. I, I, yeah, so I, I think it, anybody who listens to to a show like this, I think would would probably enjoy this book. I like it, and and the more I learn about 
the way I'm thinking, the more the more I learn that like the later Wittgenstein is like exactly how I feel <laughs> about it. So I need to. So is this about the later or the earlier? It's actually it's it recounts uh, Bertrand Russell's sort of a quest, his personal quest, and along the way he meets Frege and Cantor and Wittgenstein. Uh -huh. And he, you know, I'm trying to remember. I I think that it touches on both of them. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Anyway. Does it get it's, into it's the great. fact that they all used to have sex with each other? <laughs> I don't think it does. But it does It does portray Frege as just this rabid, crazy anti-Semite, which you might enjoy. <laughs> this is my dad. That's what my, oh, my dad would love this. Oh, God. How could you not have told me about this before? <laughs> like last year. He would have loved it. Holy shit. He's been saying that for 70 years. Yeah, he'll, he'll love it. Oh, well, he's that. smiling right now in his grave. <laughs> Real quick, one other movie. Locke. Streaming for free on Amazon Prime. It is Dave's Kantian hero in a car, played by Tom Hardy. Oh, yeah, that's great. It's just called Locke, L-O-C-K-E, and it's just him driving and for an hour and a half. Have you seen that? Yeah, it's brilliant. You, you, it's hard to describe that a movie could be good with just a guy having conversations on his phone the whole time, but but it is. It's it's amazing. Tom Hardy does a, an incredible job of sell, of just making this entertaining. And talk about a movie that's like philosophy, psychology, like it's all about just this choice that he's, making, that he's making that's gonna right. that could potentially destroy his family and destroy his career but he's doing it and he's owning up to it and the judgment is ambiguous and again it's just another one of these movies that show how complicated blame and responsibility and morality and just tom hardy in a car for an hour and a half and i mean actually incredible voice acting because all the people who sell sell these conversations you know he's basically on speakerphone yeah. for an hour and a half yeah Okay, so my book is it's Susan Wolf's Meaning in, in Life and Why It Matters. We've talked about Susan Wolf. I won't talk too much about this. I'd like to I, I interviewed her for, for the next edition of A Very Bad Wizard, the book, and we had a really nice conversation. Of, and, and what's really cool about this particular book that came out, I think, last year or two years ago. So she has this essay and that it's beautifully written as is always true. And then there are commentaries by Nomi Arpoli, John Haidt, and huh. two other guys that I'm forgetting. They're all really good commentaries. So you have this really nicely written and accessible and insightful essay, and then you have these comments on them and her response to the comments, and all of it down the line is just of a the really high quality. This is why, you know, as much as I bitch about philosophy, and academic style, the fact that there are these kinds of things make me very optimistic and very hopeful and make me love what I do and love this whole field. And it's just great. And, and the, the basic idea that she is defending in the book is that meaning in life has these two criteria. One is subjective. It involves how fulfilled you are or to what extent you value what you're doing. And the other, the more controversial one, is an, an objective criterion, a criterion of it being actually something worth valuing. And she makes, you know, as somebody who's not the most excited about objective values in that kind of sense, she makes a really good case. And I hope to play some of the 
audio that at some point on the podcast that I, that I have from that, but she makes a really strong case for it. Um, John Haidt and Nomi Arpoli attack that criterion and I think they do it pretty effectively, but it's just really cool. Um, and, and it's just about, you know, the most important question there is meaning in life. But, but, but last thing I'll say about it is the, it's, it's not just speculations about whether life has meaning or not. The idea is that, you know, when you're deciding whether to do something, whether that thing is meaningful versus whether, you know, whether it might be the most moral thing to do or the most utilitarian thing to do, that that could actually matter whether what it is is meaningful or what it is isn't meaningful. That could actually matter uh, all things considered as to whether you should choose, say, the, 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 the obviously more moral choice or this choice, which might be meaningful or it might not be meaningful. It's in some ways informs our decisions about what uh, you know, what actions or courses of actions are valuable to pursue and what aren't. It's a great book, great comments. Love it. Nice. Nice. I'll, I'll pick it up. It, sound, it does sound great. Um, you sound very excited. No, yeah. I mean, I'm curious. I actually am a big fan of Susan Wolf as well. I mean, I'm curious to, especially the commentaries, um, uh, what they what they say. I, that's, a, that's a great format for a book. I know you know, <laughs> getting other it's people. Like the, do you have to split the royalties that way then? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you Jews are always about your money. <laughs> Drink. Oh no, that was me. <laughs> On that note, uh, all right. Uh, next time, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. We'll uh, we got to answer some emails. We didn't yeah. get to those like we really wanted to. And we have so many. I, we keep saying this though, so it's but, like uh, the student that has the incomplete saying. No, I'm going to get it to you. Yeah, exactly. The worry. dog ate our email. Okay. All right. Well, happy New Year. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the other sh stuff that you people do. Thanks for all your input. You can support us at VeryBadWizards.com at the support page and tweet us and email us and just be in touch with us. We appreciate all the support. We're all the support, yeah. Thank you.